We are spending some time in the book of Proverbs. We've been going through Proverbs for four weeks or so. Last week, we took a short break. We had a guest speaker. We talked about missions a bit. That was a good change up, I think. But now we're coming back in. And today I want to talk about the heart. Um, And as we say that, it maybe sounds kind of generic, but hopefully there's some new stuff here for you. There's some interesting observations we're just, we were discussing how to preach through Proverbs in our Catalyst meeting, our staff meeting, and Brian, our youth minister, pointed out, you know, if you've ever read through Proverbs, you know there's a lot of correlation with different body parts. There's a lot of stuff about the eyes. There's a lot of stuff about the mouth and, and words that come from the mouth. There's a lot of stuff about the feet and the ears. And, and in particular, the heart is a big one. The heart is probably the epicenter. So I did a little search for the Hebrew word for heart in the book of Proverbs, and in 31 chapters, it's used 97 times. Okay, so the heart is important in Proverbs, but I don't think it's always used the way we use the word heart when we think of the heart in our Western culture today, especially in our pop culture today. We think of the heart as the seat of the emotions, right? We say, I love you with all my heart. We don't say, I love you with both my kidneys. We say, I love you with my heart, you know, because it's the seat of the emotions. It's associated with with passion and feelings, but not like the mind, right? Like we don't say, I love you with my brain or with my mind necessarily, because it just doesn't seem to resonate as much or, or go as far, right? And yet in the Hebrew language, the heart and the mind are used for the same thing. They're the same word, essentially, for example, Proverbs 15, 14 says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Or Proverbs 18, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and an ear, the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 12, 11, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. But in Hebrew, the word is the same word, heart. He who uh, follows worthless pursuits lacks a heart. So if you're lazy, you lack a heart, okay? Um, Whoever gets sense or gets a heart loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. Proverbs 15, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains a heart or gains intelligence in the English translation. Um, Chapter 11, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks a heart, and so on and so on. And I think there's something important to be grasped here. I think the Hebrews kind of had it right, because we know intellectually that your emotions and your passions do not come from your blood pumping muscle, right? I mean, you might feel it because it might beat faster, and so maybe that's where the association comes from. But at the same time, there seems to be a distinction between the mind and the heart, We would be completely foolish to assume that when our mind and our intellect make decisions that our reason is not at all influenced by our emotions or our passions, right? So I thought, you know what we could do? We could eliminate the confusion by just coming up with a new word altogether, okay? So that you know that when we're talking about the heart, we're also talking about kind of the heart and the mind. There's a synthesis of the two. They're really not separated. So we said, okay, heart, mind, it's the hind. Okay, hind, there we go, right? We, we've solved the problem. 
And but, I mean, it works because we're talking about the seat of the emotions, okay, the, the hind, right? And when you ask the question, you know, all the stuff that passes for wisdom today floating around in the media and social media, where is it coming from? You know, the hind, right? It's, okay, I was pretty proud of myself for coming up with that one, but <laughs> we won't go there. We won't keep that one around. We'll, we'll stick with heart for the purposes of this message We've been talking a lot about wisdom. Proverbs is an appeal to gain wisdom. We tend to associate wisdom with the mind, but we're also seeing it's closely connected with the heart. We've spoken of wisdom as a force that was with God in the very beginning through which he created the world. We've talked about how that force became flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about wisdom and explore wisdom, we're exploring who Jesus really is. Um, Two weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy, which says that the wisdom of God is the law of God or the Ten Commandments, okay? And when you really break down what's happening in the Ten Commandments, I hope that imagery will never leave you because there's a picture there that makes it totally relevant to our lives in a whole new way. It's not a list of arbitrary rules or do and don'ts. It's a picture of two paths, And on either end of the spectrum, there are two thrones. The first commandment is God on the throne. You shall have no other gods before me or any idols. Okay, Proverbs begins with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. On the other end of the spectrum, at the 10th commandment, you have coveting. Something else is on the throne. Something other, some other desire is taking a place of prominence in our lives. And if we go back to God on the throne, the commandments that follow paint a picture of what your life will be like if God is on the throne, leading to Sabbath, rest, equity, and relationships between other people, between the ground, between my work, between um, just all, you know, being well-fed. Being having balance in life and long life on the earth, honoring the legacy of God handed down through the father and mother and, and resulting in long life in the land that God will give you. And on the other hand, you have what happens when I put my desires and my coveting on the throne. What am I going to do to get those desires? I might make some compromises, starting with bearing false witness, telling a little lie about someone here and there in order to get what I need. But that might escalate into quarrel as James puts it in James chapter 4, which will escalate into stealing or cheating, ultimately leading up to adultery and murder. And so you have this clash of kingdoms dead center in the Ten Commandments with long life on the land on one hand and right next to it, murder, bloodshed. And you have two paths. And Proverbs The wisdom of God is all about exploring how those paths work themselves out in real life situations in very practical ways. And he does it through a list of hundreds and hundreds of sayings. So I hope we heard that and I hope it resonated in a new way that, hey, there's wisdom here. Like this, this is actually true. So when Jesus says, Um, You may not have committed adultery and committed the act, but when you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed the act in your heart. He may not be saying you've actually committed adultery, but what he's saying is, wherever you're at on this path, you're on this path. Maybe it was that path, right? Um, Wherever I was standing on the stage. You've got someone else on your throne. God isn't on the throne. That's the only thing that matters to him. And so we start to sober up a little bit and we start to realize, you know, every decision I make, every desire of my heart 
is a step on a path, and every path has a destination, and most of us are too nearsighted or unwilling to admit that our paths, our decisions, have consequences. They have a destination. And at any given time, on any given day, I find myself on the wrong path quite a bit. I think we all do. So we've spoken about wisdom as described in God's commandments. Now I want to look at Proverbs 4, 20 through 27, because the question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that wisdom? How do you apply it? You got to get it in your heart and you have to guard it. So let's look at uh, chapter 4, 20 through 27 and pay attention to just how many body parts are in this passage, okay? My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot, uh, yeah, turn your foot away from evil. You notice there's kind of a progression of body parts here. We hear wisdom. We take that wisdom in. We see wisdom with our eyes. And I think uh, you'll see how that makes sense when we look at Deuteronomy a little bit. We take it in. We grab it with our heart. Keep it with your heart. Let your heart keep these words, these wisdoms. It's like our heart gets a hold of wisdom. And then we are to guard our heart with all vigilance. And then the mouth, putting crooked speech and devious talk far from you. And the eyes, again, keep your gaze fixed directly before you. The feet, ponder the path of your feet. Now we have heard a lot about wisdom with our ears. But in order for it to make any difference in our lives, it has to go deeper. It has to get into our hearts. So that the wisdom of God, the law of God, flows out from our hearts naturally as a spring of life. The word here is the word Shema, which if you've been around, you know, Christian or Jewish or biblical circles for a while, you've probably heard that word because it's the reference to the most famous passage in, in uh, Jewish tradition. They recite the Shema all the time. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll read it in a second. But earlier in chapter 4, he says the same thing. Shema, hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of, right, of uprightness. And then there's the other word, keep. Keep wisdom with your heart. Guard it with your heart. That word is the same word, except you add one letter to it, shamar. It becomes the word guard. Okay? The Shema in Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now we read, let these words not escape from your sight. Literally, they wrote these words down on little scrolls and tied them to their heads so they would never not see the words of wisdom. That's the the extent that they're going to, to get these words into their lives, into their hearts. That's intense, right? Goes on to say, write them on your doorposts and on the house and on on your gates. Like put these words everywhere because we're forgetful people. And we're going to forget these words. We're going to forget wisdom. It's pretty serious. It's pretty intense. They went to some really great lengths to preserve and keep in their sight wisdom. That's a lot of discipline. Why? What's at stake? What's at stake is that God takes our hearts really seriously. He takes your heart very seriously. In fact, it's a matter of life and death. Keep, guard these words within your heart. They are life to those who hold them and healing to all their flesh. Keep, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it will flow springs of life. If we remember our paths two weeks ago, Remember that there is a path of wisdom that leads to life in the land. And there is a path that seems right to a man, Proverbs says, but its way ends in death. Okay? That's what's at stake. The the keys of life. Hold on to life. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and guard it. Shamar it. To keep the garden. Our passage says that these words are life to those who find them. So when we guard God's wisdom with our hearts, we are guarding life. And he goes on to say to guard our heart because, it, because from it flow the springs of life. The Bible says in Genesis that out of Eden flow springs of water feeding the garden around it. You start to see the picture that's being painted in Proverbs. It's a picture correlating our hearts with a garden like the Garden of Eden. Proverbs 3 says that wisdom is a tree of life. The tree of life was in the center of garden. For those who lay hold of her, in the center of the Garden of Eden was that tree. Or later in Exodus 19, when the Israelites are encamped by Mount Sinai, and God's presence comes down, this holy fire on Mount Sinai, reclaiming a space uh, on earth like the Garden of Eden once again. He uses the exact same words. You shall set limits, boundaries around this mountain. No, you, know, you are to keep, you are to guard, cultivate and guard these limits. Anyone who touches this mountain, and he uses these words in Hebrew, in dying he shall surely die, just like in Genesis when God says, if you touch the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in dying you will surely die. Now there's a connection with all this. They use these words repeatedly for a reason so that we'll see what they mean when they start talking about the heart using these words, okay? Same thing with the book of Numbers. The priests are repeatedly told to shamar the temple or the tabernacle, serve and guard, just like Adam and Eve are told to serve and guard the garden of creation. What are Adam and Eve guarding the creation from? What are they guarding the garden from? What's the big deal? 
The answer is they're guarding it from chaos, disorder, and from death. Okay, because at the very beginning, the act of creation, if you were a Hebrew thinker, you would see it as an act of warfare. An act of warfare against formlessness, chaos, and disorder. And an act of warfare against darkness and an act of warfare against death, lifelessness. So when it starts off, it says the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So God creates forms, days one through three, night and day, light and dark. Second day, the skies, and the oceans beneath. Third day, the land separated from the waters. Uh, he answers the formlessness. He creates order, form, something that can sustain life. Days four through six, he fills the void with life, answers the emptiness with life, starting with the sun, moon, and stars and celestial beings to rule over the night and day, moving then to the fish over the skies, the birds, or this fish over the seas, the birds over the skies, and then the animals on the, the form of the land, and then human beings to rule over all of it as God's representatives told to guard this now. Guard the form and the life that God has created out of formlessness, chaos, and lifelessness. Okay? So what happens to allow chaos and death into the creation? Well, no, remember where our passage goes next in Proverbs. It says, put away devious talk or crooked words and devious speech, put it far from you. What happens next in the garden? How does chaos and death enter the garden that they're supposed to guard? The devious words, the crooked speech of a serpent who comes along. And what does he say? He says, does God really say you can't eat from any tree in this garden? No, God didn't say that. He said we can eat from any tree of this garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of it, we'll surely die. The serpent says, no, 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 you're not going to die. No, God knows that when you eat of this tree, you'll be like him, having wisdom over good and evil. You'll be able to determine good or evil, not have to trust him for what is good or evil. And so what is the serpent doing? How does he create an opening for chaos and death to enter, he gets them to believe, God's holding out on me. There's something better that I'm missing out on if I choose to trust him. I'm not sure I trust God anymore. Is he trustworthy? Does he love me? Does he actually have my best in mind? Does he want me to be happy? Does he want me to be gratified? Does he want me to be fulfilled? Well, this looks really fulfilling. In fact, looking is the next place our Proverbs passage goes. Look straight ahead. You know, let your eyes not deviate to the right or the left. How do the devious words of the serpent usher in chaos and death into the creation? Because they look at the fruit and they see that it's beautiful and it's good to eat and it looks beneficial for gaining wisdom. So they take it and eat it and their eyes are opened. Right? So there's this huge correlation here. What does it mean? It means the heart is like that garden. Okay, your heart is a precious, most holy place. 
In fact, Proverbs 7 says, My son, keep my words, guard my words, and treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. They are life. They are a tree of life in the garden. Keep my teaching, guard my teaching, as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. That's a reference to the Ten Commandments now being written on our hearts. Write my words, the life-giving wisdom of God, on the tablets of your heart. So the heart is the holy of holies in the tabernacle, the temple. The heart is the Ark of the Covenant that is holding on to, containing God's wisdom on those two tablets. The heart is what is shielding and guarding the tree of life from any outside defilement. And from the heart is supposed to spring rivers of living water, life pouring out and feeding the surrounding garden. Your heart is a garden. Your heart is a temple. The idea that what Paul brings up when he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's not a New Testament idea. That's an Old Testament idea that gets new meaning in Jesus Christ. Your heart is a temple. Your heart is a body, is a a garden. So, the question becomes, do I trust his wisdom? Is he trustworthy. I can, I can look at these two paths. I can look at an intellectual argument that reframes the whole way I ever thought about the Ten Commandments, and I can say, you know what? That's wisdom. But in the moment when the rubber hits the road, in the face of some decision or temptation, what is going to push me over the edge to choose wisdom and not coveting and not the other path. I found this great passage in Proverbs. It might be one of my new favorite Bible verses. It's brilliant. It goes like this. Proverbs 24, 13 and 14. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Right. Amazing, right? Uh, you know, they didn't have a lot of sweets back then or sweet things that you could eat. They had fruits and whatnot. I don't know, they make some kind of honey cakes or things that were treats for people. But that was about as sweet as it got. You know, you didn't have a lot of sources of sugar back then. Eat honey, for it's good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to the taste. Know that wisdom is such for your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Wisdom is like that honey. And in the moment, I'm hearing that, and I'm going, really? Because this path looks a lot more like honey to me. And in fact, Proverbs 5, there's a warning here against an adulteress. He says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, and her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And he has in mind here the path, right? Starting from coveting, lust, leading to adultery, ultimately bloodshed, 
murder. Now, in real life, it doesn't always end up there. But this is the path. And he wants us to see that there's a path. But it looks like honey, right? It looks sweet. And the point is, transformation doesn't happen from the outside in. It doesn't happen from just the mind because my emotions and my passions within me are often at war with the mind, the hind, right? The synthesis of the two. Transformation doesn't come but just saying, you know, that looks like wisdom. I think that's true because then when the rubber hits the road, when you're one click away from looking at pornography on the internet and you know it's going to be really gratifying, it looks like honey. What's it going to take to convince you, no, no, that's bitterness. This is honey over here. What's going to push you over that edge? Or when you're one handshake away from a shady business deal that you know is a good shortcut to short-term gain, but you know it's wrong. You know wisdom intellectually, but what is actually going to cause you to not go there, but to choose a path of wisdom instead? Or when you are One step away from whatever it is. One step away from revenge. You know it would taste so sweet. And how much pain it would cause that person who caused you so much pain. One step from that revenge. What is going to hold your foot back? You might know wisdom, but how does that knowledge take over the impulses of your heart? Transformation doesn't happen from the outside in. Ian Hutchinson is a scientist who has written and talked a lot about faith and science and trying to reconcile those two worlds and show that they're not totally incompatible. And one question that he was asked is, how do you reconcile science with faith? And what he had in mind is, hasn't, hasn't science somehow disproven faith? And he, and he said, you know, what they usually have in mind is by faith, is a a list of propositions that you should believe without any scientific evidence backing it. He said that's usually not what faith is. Most of faith in the Bible is trust. It's God saying, do you trust me at my word? Do you trust me enough to follow this path and not this path? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Do we trust him? to walk according to his commands. And what the, the thing that's going to make all the difference in the world, when you are at that crossroads, is this. Have I found him to be trustworthy? Have I found him to be trustworthy? Have I experienced God's trustworthiness? Because only that, only that experience will penetrate the heart and change the mind in order to be able to walk according to God's law, according to his wisdom. So where does that come from? Is he trustworthy? Jeremiah 31, 33 is taking into stock the fact that despite all the discipline of the people holding his words right in front of their eyes, they could not keep God's commandments. No one could do it. No one could achieve wisdom from the outside in. No one could stick to the path. And so they're in exile 
and he writes, For this is the covenant, a new covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Write wisdom on the tablet of your hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or Ezekiel 36, 25, or 26 through 28 says, And I will give you a new heart. See, our hearts are so corrupt, we can't just repair it on our own. We need a whole new heart. And give you a heart, excuse me, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so Jesus, in John chapter 7, on the last day of a feast, says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Ezekiel had said, I will give them a new heart and I will put my spirit in them so that by the spirit they will be able to choose wisdom. They will have a new heart that receives and lives according to life. A heart that issues forth springs of living waters because it keeps my life, my wisdom in it and they guard that. And Jesus is saying, believe in me. Believe in me and your heart will spring forth living water. You you can't get it by writing things on every surface in front of your face. But get me, get me in your heart, and that'll change things. So we come back to that question, is he trustworthy? And even in Deuteronomy, the reference was, How can we trust God? Well, what has he done for us? How has he shown his trustworthiness? It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you didn't build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And I bring that forward today and I say, can I trust God or is he holding out on me? And I start to think, you know, there's no reason for me to have been born into the family I was born into, to have received the things I've received, to be in the position that I am in, to have the family that I have, to have healthy kids at home, to have, well, actually two of them are sick today, but to have a a roof a roof over our heads, to have food on our table. There's no reason for that. And no, God doesn't play favorites. And he has different plans for different people and people go through different dilemmas and struggles. It's not a measurement of how much God loves us. Oftentimes we find his love through those struggles more profoundly than anything else. But do I deserve all these things? 
How has he shown his goodness? Because my Moses brought me out of slavery. My Jesus paid the price that rescued me from bondage to my sin. When you've experienced that, you start to know what trustworthy is all about. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. Not, God gave us a proposal, wisdom, and it sounded good. So we're doing it. No, no, no. He's trustworthy. We were slaves. And he rescued us with a mighty hand. Why do you believe the Lord? Because I was a slave. And God changed my life. And showed himself to be trustworthy. What has he done for you? For me? You see, you can do a business transaction with someone. And whether or not you go through with it, part of that decision is going to be based on whether or not you feel like the other party is trustworthy. Right? Paul had a proposition for Philemon, a a former slave owner, who had become a Christian. And so had uh, his former slave, Onesimus. And the penalty for runaway slaves was potentially very great if the slave owner wanted it to be. So Paul writes a letter to Philemon and says, I want you to take this slave back, not only to reinstate him as a slave, I want you to take him back as a brother. I want you to take him back as an equal. Why should I trust you, Paul? I know what Jesus asks of us to love our neighbors. I know that what you say, there is now no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. But when the rubber hits the road, hey, I've got some feelings about this. Hey, I've got some work that this costs me a lot of money. Okay, when the rubber hits the road, why shouldn't I pull the trigger and enact vengeance? Give this guy what he deserves. Why should I trust you, Paul? Because Paul says, whatever he's got against you, put it on me. Do it to me instead. And that's what Jesus has done to us. That's where Paul takes his cue. How do you know Christ is trustworthy? Because every wicked Thought every step on the wrong path, every debt we owe to God, Jesus looks at you and he looks at his father and he says, God, whatever they owe you, put that on me. You see, the thing that gets into the heart that establishes trust is an incredible act of love. The thing that prevents trust is when we look at the other party and we say, what's in it for you? How much are you withholding from me? What are you trying to gain from this? But when the other party gives up everything they could possibly withhold for you, when I'm looking at that path and I'm pondering the path and I'm saying, you know, it's just one click. It's one isolated event. It's not hurting anyone. It's not going to change anything in the long run. The thing that makes Jesus trustworthy is when he takes on flesh and blood and and says, I will show you in my own flesh every step of this path and how it plays out. I will walk 
the whole distance from experiencing, we have a, a sleeping dog here, this is great. If you're, everyone's going, what is that? Um, I, will, I will show you the path in my flesh and I'll experience it on your behalf. That's the transaction. So he says, I will bear the outcome of your coveting. I will receive the results of your lies and your false testimony. I will experience the consequence for your cheating and your theft and your stealing. And I will walk through what it is to have a people who should love me above all run to adultery and I will embrace murder and bloodshed on your behalf. That's the deal. That's the proposition. And when he looks at me and he says, for every mistake you've possibly made, put it on me. That's trustworthy. And that changes my heart. Because when you're in that kind of a transaction, the thing that's going to penetrate is an incredible act of care and love. We've all heard, I don't know, business deals, people trying to sell you a membership or whatever. They all try to make you feel like they care. But there's always something in it for them or they wouldn't be engaging in the deal. Jesus says it's all or nothing. I give everything. I withhold nothing from you. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He gives us a new heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit that we start to walk in step with. Why? Because the law is fulfilled in him, his righteousness for you as a gift. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we could become the righteousness of God. He's trustworthy. So, your heart is a garden, is the holy of holies, is a wellspring of living water, is the shelter for the tree of life, God's wisdom that gives life that we are supposed to guard. How do we guard it? What devious words are we listening to? What lies are we buying into? This is honey over here, not that. Can you really trust God? I think he's holding out on you. What sights are we being drawn to? The fruit looks pretty good. The answer to how I respond in those moments is do I trust God at his word? that his path is better, that that's where the real honey is. What makes all the difference in the world of whether or not I'm going to trust him? Is he trustworthy? 
And only by an extreme experience of his love and grace will you ever find him trustworthy. So, get Jesus into your heart. Get the gospel into your heart. Get that truth into your heart. And the trustworthiness of God will change the way you hear devious talk. It will give you the ability to keep your eyes straight ahead and keep the paths of your feet along the way that results in order and life as opposed to chaos and death. Is there chaos in your world today? There's a lot of chaos in our world today. God says there is a path that leads to life. But you don't earn his good favor according to how you walk the path. He gives it freely as a gift. And our hearts are transformed. He is trustworthy. And we start to walk the path out of a new heart. Let's pray. God, I pray we'd hear wisdom today. I pray your proposition would make sense, but not just intellectually. Because we can say, this is really profound. This is good. This is true. But Lord, when the rubber hits the road, I know that I fail miserably. And you respond to my failure, God, not by saying, I can't believe you. Get up off your feet. Try again. Pick up the weight. Carry it. Do better next time. How could you insult me like this? I used to think that was who you are, God. Until one day when I was wallowing in my guilt, you spoke to me through a song and you said, I have graven your name on these hands. I have written your name on my heart. And as long as I stand before the Father as your advocate interceding for you, no words, no tongue can bid you thence depart from me. Nothing can get in the way of you in my love. You spoke those words to me, Lord, and it changed my paths. I experienced your trustworthiness. And I pray that that is the experience that everyone here would have. That they would know your love and the gospel and that it would transform the way we live and the way we walk. The work is done. If you think your sin is too great for God to love you or to handle Know that those are the words of Satan tempting you to despair. Those are deceptive words. His grace is a free gift. And you can receive it today. So God, I just pray that you would change the way we think. Give us a new heart. Change the way we walk. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.